Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 128 for the week ending, November 9th, 2018, the And You Thought You Had a Bad Week edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at the very, very bad week that Goldman Sachs had around its role in the 1MDB scandal and multiple other stories. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In addition to the Goldman Sachs 1MDB imbroglio and my plethora of stories on that, we take a look at a new academic paper which shows that better whistleblowing programs actually save money and put ROI on the bottom line. What happens when a compliance professional is not up to the task? We consider who is responsible for ethics and whether or not the Hoskins decision changed any requirements around due diligence on intermediaries. We consider the Stryker FCPA enforcement action as a understanding of your per diem expense reimbursements. We consider golden passports and do they portend corruption. We consider the uh, magistrate's recommendation of the dismissal of the Petavesa lawsuit, trying to recoup the proceeds of bribery and corruption. We take a look at the SEC recent enforcement report and ask, is the glass half full or half empty? We also consider how an FEC investigation begins. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 128, for the week ending November 9th, 2018, and the You Thought You Had a Bad Week edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. How are you today? So, uh, Jay, I suppose if Adam Turtletop was on this podcast, we might say something along the lines of, uh, I guess you thought simply because you'd lost two World Series in a row, you had a bad week, but um, Goldman Sachs had a very bad week. And it was mostly around its role in the 1MDB scandal. And uh, even as of today, things are uh, still going downhill when we find out that the uh, former president of the organization met personally with uh, the prime minister of Malaysia and his right-hand man, Jay Lowe. So um, not good for Goldman, but there was a bunch of other compliance and ethics stories this week. So you want to jump right into it? Yeah, I, I know you always love talking about 1MDB, so did you uh, want to dive in a little bit deeper, or do we just want to uh, pass on that and go to the next subject? Nope, nope. Let's, uh, you can't pass up a good uh, corruption story, and this one's <laughs> been with us for a while, and it's going to continue to be, but um, this week, or last week, we had the indictment 
of J-Lo and the managing director of Goldman Sachs, Roger Ng, and the guilty plea of Tim Leisner, former Goldman Sachs partner and head of the Southeast Asia Business Unit. This week, um, things have only gotten worse. Goldman announced in a 10Q filing, basically mea culpa. They said that, uh, yes, um, the that they tried to set up a rogue employee defense, that these guys lied to our compliance people, to our legal people, uh, and that uh, it was just horrible, terrible what happened. We did have some bad culture out there, but, you know, it's out there, not here. Well, and then today we find out that the uh, CEO, Lloyd Blankenfeld, former CEO, former president, rather, had met directly with uh, the head of the Malaysian government and the, and the person running uh, the sovereign wealth fund. So very bad. Um, $600 million in profits to Goldman. Uh, Malaysian officials have called for the return of those profits, uh, whether they will be uh, part of a uh, profit disgorgement payment to the United States government or return to the Malaysian government or something else. Um, but Goldman's in a pretty sticky wicket if we can uh, kind of use <clears throat> cross-Atlantic metaphors. Lots of articles on it. Several in the Financial Times we've cited to. Sam Rubenfeld wrote a really interesting piece about the failure of internal controls. Uh, I had a three-part series on it. So uh, if you're interested in all in the case, uh, check it out. Um, but in, in if we can go the other way from uh, perhaps uh, bad news or at least negative news for a company to what I thought was a fabulous piece of news for the compliance profession. You want to tell us about that, Jay? Yeah, um, we're going to link to both an article by Tom and a couple articles from uh, Matt Kelly, our colleague over at Radical Compliance. And uh, Matt was talking about some research recently done by Navex Global. And um, basically, this new academic research uh, empirically confirms something most corporate compliance officers have long suspected, that there is a clear correlation between the uh, internal whistleblower reporting and better business uh, in terms of those folks who listen to Tom and I on a weekly basis. I'm sure that makes a lot of sense. But just to spell it out for their newbies or anybody who haven't hasn't heard this theory before, more internal whistleblower activity was found to correlate to fewer material lawsuits against the company, lower litigation settlement costs, fewer whistleblower complaints to outside regulators, less potential earnings for uh, management, and may even lead to higher returns on assets. So all of those things seems to be positives. And uh, the correlations talk about uh, the fewer material lawsuits, companies with higher levels of reporting were subject to 6.9% fewer pending material lawsuits. They lowered their litigation costs. Those with higher hotline usage faced 20.4% less in total settlement accounts. There were fewer external whistleblower reports and a greater profitability and um, productivity. So um, the the big takeaway from uh, Matt's first article that he wrote on November 1st was that 
this enormously re useful research for compliance officers because the simple concept it proves whistleblower activity is a barometer of how willing employees are to speak up about organizational problems and the more easily a company can talk about this the more it can solve problems so um tom you took a, a similar path anything uh, different that you wanted to talk about I know you spoke with Bob Conlin, head of Navix. Uh, any, anything to add from that? Well, just a couple of things, uh, Jay. First of all, uh, to reemphasize one of the points you hit, um, that there is a reduction by 6.9% of material lawsuits. Now, think about that because that's using materiality standard in accounting. So that means 5%, basically. So if you're a $100 million company, that's one less $5 million lawsuit per year. Um, that's a huge number. Now, if you're a billion-dollar company or a multi-billion-dollar company, just multiply it out. So whatever the cost of an internal whistleblowing system is, uh, it ain't $5 million. Uh, so think about that for the return. And then you also mentioned the figure of 20% plus reduction in lawsuit settlements. That's a huge number for any company. So um, the amount of savings alone is, uh, I think, just stunning. Um, second of all, this was not a NAVAX uh, report. This was an academic paper uh, by Dr. Kyle from uh, George, uh, George Washington, where he, he looked at anonymized data. So um, the data came from almost uh, 20 years of whistleblowing reports by NAVEX and or its predecessors, but it was an ac independent academic paper, and, and Dr. Kyle made clear that uh, NAVEX did not pay for this in, in any way, shape, or form. So um, we have a true independent academic looking at it. And really, the, the last point, Jay, is, and perhaps for me the biggest point, was we have seen such organizations as Ethosphere with their world's most ethical awards be able to talk about the uh, increased or higher level of profitability by companies which win the WME award over the Standard & Poor's 500 index. We've heard similar uh, results from LRN and their annual <clears throat> HAL reports. Uh, we've seen uh, Barbara uh, Kimmel and her Trust Across America report, her annual report, show that uh, companies with greater trust tend to be more profitable. Those are all significant reports because they demonstrate that companies that do business uh, in compliance and more ethically are more profitable. But here we have the specific, a specific tool used actually required in every compliance program of a U.S. public company because Sarbanes-Oxley requires a whistleblower line. You have to have one. Um, this is not sort of a, a, a good idea or good to have or even less have it. This is a must-have legally. So you've got to have this. So if you have it, why not use it? And if you're going to use it, this report shows you're going to get significant benefits from it. So for me, Jay, it was the first time we've seen a academic paper highlight specific tactical tools that a compliance officer would use to not only uh, show the return on those investments, uh, but also greater uh, return on assets for the entire company as a whole. So I thought it was a very significant report. I'm certainly going to be writing and talking about it uh, at greater length going forward. Uh, it certainly can be classified as one of those win-win situations. So uh, now we have something that 
may be less than a win-win. Uh, what happens when a compliance professional is not up to the job? Uh, David Crow takes a look at an FCA investigation in the United Kingdom, and this comes to us from the FT, the Financial Times. What's the story there, Tom? So, sure, Jay. First, the FCA is the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. That's the uh, group that looks at global uh, banking uh, and markets for the UK government. And they are investigating a compliance officer at HSBC uh, because of his competence. And this is really the first time I can recall um, an inquiry around a person's, a compliance officer's competence. Now, this is something that is required, uh, or at least was called out in the 2017 FCPA Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program document released by the Department of Justice. It was also specifically called out in the uh, Department of Justice's 2016 FCPA pilot program, and it was brought forward to the 2017 new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So the Department of Justice has specifically talked about the competence of compliance professionals, but here we have an investigation over in the UK about the competence of a compliance professional. So um, I think it really puts all uh, compliance professionals on notice that uh, government regulators may be looking at not only your credentials, but uh, not uh, only do you have a piece of paper, but can you actually do it as well? So a very interesting development. Uh, that led to um, a question about who is responsible for ethics. Good question, Tom. This uh, article comes to us from Dr. Marsha Ashragi Hames over at LRN, and she's actually responding to something that Kara Fisher published, uh, rather Kara Swisher published in the New York Times about ethics and compliance in Silicon Valley. Of course, it mentioned our good friend Elon Musk. And uh, Marsha's been uh, in the ethics and compliance field for a very long time, and she says that Ethics are not the responsibility of a single person, a single role, or even a single function in an organization. Ethics should not be buried as a, quote, nice to have, unquote, but ethical decision-making is and should be the standard part of doing business. And an organization that builds its business on how it achieves its goals uh, makes the goals not abstract, but lays the groundwork for sustainable long-term success. And this is something that we talk about along, you know, very often in this podcast that it's not just the the tone at the top and the mood in the middle and what's happening on the front line, but uh, companies to succeed. And this kind of builds on the uh, um, article we just talked about with the uh, whistleblower hotline. If your company has credibility and trust, then you will succeed. If you set up a speak up culture and then you also show that the company listens, that also uh, makes a huge difference. And ECI had a global business ethics survey and they found that employees tend to report misdeeds 71% of the time, but they only do this when they believe that top management is committed to ethics. So I know something that was spoken about uh, at the conference a couple of weeks ago, my colleague Eric Feldman has been speaking about it too, is also the organizational justice. So I think when you when you wrap this all together, the responsibility for ethics does not lay with one person or one silo, 
but it really stems from setting up that that ethical culture that's going to permeate the business and allow your employees to make good decisions. So, Jay, next we had an um, interesting article, I thought, in the FCPA blog about the Hoskins decision. And uh, although um, this uh, article by Eric Lochner from Steele talked about due diligence, it really, uh, I thought, broadened out into several different areas and even had some applicability to the one MDB scandal. But he, uh, Eric posited a couple of implications for the compliance practitioner that I think are worth relating. Number one, it increases the importance of monitoring a company's third parties beyond initial onboarding. Uh, this is a uh, practice pointer, uh, guideline, uh, uh, something that's become clearer and clearer, Jay, that simply having a onboarding process is not enough for your third parties. You have to monitor their performance, or as I would say, the real work comes after the contract is signed and you have to manage that relationship. So that's sort of point one. But point two was that Compliance officers also need to be aware of, and he even used the word police against, or words I should say, opportunists inside and outside the organization. And that seemed to me to be directly applicable to uh, Goldman Sachs, OneMDB, Tim Leiser, Roger Ng, and others at Goldman Sachs um, who were aware of uh, Jay Lowe's role as uh, the de facto head of OneMDB, but may not have given that information to the compliance uh, uh, the uh, function within the organization and you know why wasn't the compliance function doing its own independent research so some pretty uh, I thought salient points from Hoskins that uh, we hopefully uh, will be talking about because they're important enough uh, going forward and so uh, this is a comment that doesn't come from a compliance angle but Tom every time you mention one MDB and Jay Lowe um, I keep thinking about Jennifer Lopez and her being um, a, a fly girl and, and, and dancing uh, and, and doing her thing. So I'm going to have to try to get that one J-Lo association uh, out of my mind. Yeah, we'll leave, uh, we'll leave that one to, to, to you, Jay. So but next having, up, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Having said that, uh, what, do you, uh, what did you learn about the Stryker FCPA enforcement action and uh, perm diem expense reimbursements? Yeah, this was something that I'd never really uh, considered, but within Stryker, uh, they found that there was an allegation that Stryker's Kuwait, Kuwaiti distributor made over 32000 in improper per diem payments uh, to Kuwaiti uh, healthcare providers to attend Stryker events when Stryker had paid direct costs for lodging, meals, and transportation. And I guess the one thing to look at is it's difficult to gauge uh, in Stryker's two per diems. The SEC provided that they paid a total amount of $32,000 from 2015 to 2017. And uh, the author of this piece here, uh, Kaiden Creekpalm, says that, you know, we shouldn't be calling out per diems as bribes per se, but the SEC may be starting to stating to say that they were excessive in this instance, 
but without more facts, it's a little bit um, guesswork. And where Stryker got caught up was an alleged book and records and internal controls violation, not anti-bribery. And the one thing uh, that the author offers here is that sometimes if you're a professional, I think his example is, what about a surgeon who lives in Chennai and he's normally paid hourly and he attends a medical device demonstration in Mumbai and the company will pay for his travel costs, but there may be other costs that uh, he cannot cover under that, uh, you know, the travel costs, the, the money, the ticket there. So he may need some additional per diem. So the, uh, the thought here is to keep that in mind. And we've got to look at sometimes that could be uh, a slush fund or that could be a way to, um, you know, give somebody a kickback or get them to come, but it shouldn't uh, per se on the face be looked at as uh, an additional avenue of bribery. Anything to add on that one, Tom? Uh, the um, This is really not, I don't think, ever come up before in a FCPA enforcement action. Uh, you can pay per diem, so let, let me emphasize that, but they have to be small in amount and you have to have uh, a receipt to back it up. So if you give a foreign government official or employee of a state-owned enterprise a per diem for travel while they're in the United States or other location, that can be done, but, uh, you know, something pretty low. And then at the end of that trip, they have to have the receipts uh, to back it up and give back any of the money they don't have receipts for. So uh, can we just say document, document, document? Document, document, document. So next up, Tom, we've got um, a due diligence warning about golden passport countries. This comes to us for our friend Dick Casson over at the FCPA blog. What's on Dick's mind? So Dick wrote about an OECD report on golden passport schemes. And these are schemes where, um, I shouldn't say schemes, because there are well-known tactic that countries will sell passports and citizenships for investment uh, into a country. So um, United States has that. Canada has that. Other countries that are generally not thought of as high risk have this. But uh, in many of the higher risk countries, you, you can buy a passport for a relatively low amount and that buy a legal passport and legal citizenship, not on the uh, black market. So um, the um, OECD report analyzed um, over 100 of these schemes and found programs in 21 uh, countries where foreign income uh, does not have to be reported. So uh, what it does is it uh, provides a uh, window shade over transparency or adds to opaqueness. The mere fact that you have a golden passport, I don't think is in and of itself indicia of corruption, uh, but it's certainly something that uh, could lead to a red flag being raised that must be cleared. And simply because you have a golden passport, I think the key is if it's in a money laundering jurisdiction or a, a other high-risk jurisdiction, that's really what uh, you need to took, take a look at. But uh, interesting article and a uh, great summary by uh, Dick Casson. That leads us, Jay, to um, uh, the ongoing and never-ending uh, Petavesa matter. So we had a uh, interesting development in the Petavesa suit. You want to tell us about that? Yes. So uh, this comes to us from Law 360 from Carolina Bolado. Uh, dateline, uh, I guess, or rather, time, 
day, uh, November 6th, so it was earlier this week, a Florida magistrate judge has concluded that the litigation trust set up by Petavesa to bring a suit over an alleged bribery scheme does not have standing to pursue the claims, and she recommended that they be dismissed. Uh, on Monday, the U.S. magistrate judge, Alicia Otazo-Reyes, sided with defendants who said that the litigation trust set up by Petavesa does not have standing because the Venezuelan letters legislature never approved its contract to pursue the claims. So um, I guess basically Petavesa is claiming that there are two men who formed an additional shell company incorporated in Panama or Barbados, and that they controlled through uh, their entity called Helsinge, which were used to launder bribes between international oil companies set up. And what happened was uh, companies that allegedly took place include Glencore Limited, Luke Oil Petroleum, Colonial Group, uh, Macefield AG, Trafigura AG, and VTOL SA, as well as several uh, subsidiaries. And this ended up being uh, basically a, a bidding scheme through this consortia. And then uh, if one company was interested in bidding, they would tell all corrupt employees who would then change the terms of the tender to make sure that one of the participating companies uh, had a winning bid. So just uh, more bad news coming out of Petavesa, but, you know, um, definitely uh, a common scheme with uh, bidders uh, colluding and deciding on who is going to get the benefit. So, Jay, in pre-shadowing or foreshadowing, I should say, uh, an upcoming Everything Compliance episode, uh, there was a couple of articles we've noted that talked about the uh, 2017 year ending, and that was September 30, because that's the uh, fiscal year end for the SEC, report on enforcement. And a couple of things. One was that the numbers, the raw numbers were way up, but that was largely because of the uh, Petrobras settlement, particularly incorporating the $2.9 billion shareholder settlement as a part of the SEC's alleged uh, fines and penalties. Uh, so that drove that uh, particular number way up. When you pulled out all of the credits that uh, Petrobras received, turns out that the numbers were the lowest since 2009. So a pretty dramatic drop in SEC enforcement. Um, we also link, though, to an article by our, our good friend Francine McKenna at MarketWatch, where the co-director of enforcement, uh, Stephanie Ak Ak uh, Akavian, rather, uh, said that it's the SEC's impact, not numbers, which matter. Um, that's a I don't want to say a completely specious argument because there's some <laughs> truth to it. Uh, but when you have to say, oh, no, 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 don't look at our numbers, look at our impact, um, but don't look very close. Um, that really, uh, I think, uh, shows that on the regulatory side, we've had a pretty significant cutback by this administration. Uh, whether that is a good or a bad thing, it's, it's certainly a thing. So uh, interesting reports uh, on the numbers going forward. Did, so, and did you uh, talk about the glass half full aspect or not? Um, uh, well, the, the, bit, the bit with Charles Kane and that they're actually going after some different. Industries. Yes, Charles Kane. Um, in another talk, Charles Kane's the head of the uh, SEC's FC, 
CPA unit, succeeding Kara Brockmeyer. Charles Kane said that uh, there's going to be some new industries who are under uh, SEC FCPA scrutiny. Um, on the one hand, um, it's going to be interesting to see what industry group this may be. On the other hand, we've seen numerous or multiple industry sweeps in the past, so uh, this is really not something new. Nevertheless, when you have the uh, the head of the unit saying, watch out, it's coming, I think we all need to uh, sit up and listen or look and see what might be coming down the pipe. Yeah, and, and I think another point that the folks will hear when um, our next Everything Compliance hits is a lot of this has to do is when you're taking the sample size and uh, if you're looking at the end of the uh, Obama administration where there seemed to be a lot of uh, matters that were kind of uh, pushed out so they could get credit for that. And then you're taking a look at the first 20 months here of the um, Trump administration. I think Mike Volkov, Volkov points out that it's, it's really is an, an apples to oranges comparison. So I think we still need to get a little bit more time to get some visibility on these numbers and, and see what they mean. Uh, you got me a, a fun one to do here, which is um, ever wonder how an FEC investigation begins? Uh, Dan Portnov explains it all on grand jury on jury. So this is something that I never knew about. But uh, basically, uh, this post talks about uh, a series for non-lawyers or non-security lawyers who might suddenly find themselves on the wrong side of an SEC document request. And basically how this starts out is the SEC enforcement will initiate something and the acronym, the, the thing is called a matter under inquiry and the acronym is MUI and it's pronounced MUI. So in many cases, a MUI is a precursor to a formal investigation. And uh, in the article, Daniel goes on to um enumerate at least eight different things where the um, uh, investigation could stem from. So I'll just kind of summarize them. Uh, the first thing could be an SEC uh, Office of Complaint Inspections and Examination. That's an OCI. It could get referred from a federal or state regulator, could be referred uh, directly from uh, FINRA or another agency. Uh, we always talk about whistleblowers and anonymous tips, referrals from Congress, offshoots of ongoing investigations. So an example of that would have been, um, I guess, kind of like when the Mueller investigation uh, found things from uh, uh, the former fixer, Mr. Cohen. And then that information on Michael Cohen was referred to the uh, local uh, authorities in New York City. So, uh, and the last two ones are enforcement staff initiative and market surveillance. So um, Daniel concludes by saying, no matter how a, a MUI or investigation commences, finding yourself under the scrutiny by enforcement staff can be disorienting and unnerving. And in the next installment, he's going to cover what to do when the SEC makes initial contact. So uh, I found that to be a very interesting article. Tom, uh, next up, uh, we've got a couple master classes that you and Jonathan Marks are going to be uh, holding. Why don't you give our listeners some info on that? Well, Jay, uh, Jonathan Marks and I are going to do a master class Monday and Tuesday in New York. We've got a couple of slots left. So if you're interested in, in what I think is a top compliance training course around, uh, check out uh, my website. Uh, if you want more information, I'm happy to send you the agenda. But you can register and join us on Monday. 
And then, uh, Jay, I was extraordinarily pleased uh, to announce uh, once again, uh, re-announce, I should say, the uh, Daily Compliance News. I'm putting out a daily podcast with four. You, you are just such a slacker. You just hang around in your, like, you know, fluffy slippers and walk around the house. You don't do anything. So this is your what number podcast? On a weekly basis, do you do 10 things or is it more? Uh, I think this is 13. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, uh, you can see my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. But I have to tell you that, uh, except for this morning, I had coffee four times this week with Tom and he does an incredible breakdown, three minutes of the top ethics and compliance stories that you need to know about that day. And if you uh, only have three minutes to get your bearings, uh, you should spend the morning and have half, half a cup of coffee with Tom. So with that, Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. So uh, on behalf of my uh, coffee-drinking friend, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. Uh, we'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA, episode 128, for the week ending December 9th, the You Thought You Had a Bad Week edition. Uh, as always, thanks for joining us, and we wish you a safe and wonderful and healthy weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of this week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Next week, I'm going to have a special five-part podcast series sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, where I take a look at uh, ethics and compliance monitoring in the EU and beyond. It'll be a fascinating exploration of ethics and compliance outside of the U.S., specifically around independent integrity monitoring. I know you will want to uh, check it out. It will post on iTunes, all five episodes on Monday, and then daily on this site, the FCPA Compliance Report and JD Super. I hope you'll check it out. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.